0: It happened a few years ago, and I've come to describe it as a uniquely memorable moment of liturgical drama. I was serving as the United Methodist District Superintendent, one of the United Methodist District Superintendents in Western Pennsylvania, and was sitting in the very small sanctuary of one of the churches on my district on the first Sunday of Advent. One of the ushers of the congregation when attempting to place two offering plates on the altar immediately following the morning offering, suddenly discovered that the presence of the large advent wreath on the altar along with the baptismal bowl did not allow sufficient space for the offering plates. He put both of the offering plates into one arm and with his free hand, he began spontaneously to rearrange some of the materials on the altar to create some fresh space. In so doing, this usher accidentally knocked the freshly lit, poorly secured first Advent candle off of the altar and into the Christmas tree that was standing right beside the altar, igniting at least one, maybe two, of the Christmas ornaments, wooden chrismons, mind you, that apparently, by all appearances, were highly flammable. The liturgist, demonstrating an alacrity that I'm pretty sure she had not accessed since the Truman administration, um, moved to the baptismal bowl, which was full of water from that morning's baptism, and proceeded to throw the baptismal water onto the burning portion of the tree dousing the frame, the flames as the members of the congregation, myself included, ood and awed in wide-eyed excitement. The young pastor of the congregation eager to communicate that all was well, stepped into the pulpit and brought his face very close to the microphone. And he said this, hey folks, let's be honest. I don't even think Moses got this excited over a burning bush. (laughs) It's a peculiar moment we find in this morning's Old Testament scripture from the book of Exodus, isn't it? An angel of the Lord appears as manifested fire in what scripture describes as, get this, a place beyond the wilderness. A place beyond the wilderness, and that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's actually a translation of a Hebrew phrase that calls to mind a particular kind of ruggedness of terrain, a particular kind of isolation. This is not a tabernacle, in other words, I think we're meant to understand. This is not a designated altar space. This is not a place for calculated sanctity and genuflection. This is a place beyond the wilderness. Think about it this way. If you were to arrive at the heart of either a literal or a metaphorical wilderness, you'd have to go another five miles to get to this place. Frightening, dangerous, outside of the rhythms of what we consider to be normative living. And I emphasize that point for two reasons. First, because scripture emphasizes that point. And second, because it is precisely in this place beyond the wilderness that the God of the universe decides to show up. As a mystical fire falling upon a bush without consuming it and initiating a dialogue with an unsuspecting shepherd by the name of Moses in a moment of divine revelation that would change everything for Moses and for the people that he would eventually lead. Take off your sandals, God says to Moses, speaking to him from this mystical flame, take off your sandals for I am the God of your ancestors in the faith. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob calling to mind the rich salvation history with which Moses would have been intimately familiar. And through the manifestation of my presence, I have made this place beyond the wilderness into what? Holy ground. Take off your sandals, Moses, for the ground has become holy. It seems to be part of the very character of our God, does it not? This reckless eagerness to occupy those portions of territory that we are so often quick to dismiss as being beyond the wilderness, beyond healing, beyond redemption, beyond hope, beyond restoration. I'm speaking of territories, and territories like our suffering, and our grief, and our illness, and our pain, and our broken relationships, and our addiction, and our depression. If we're listening with our heart this morning, we find in scripture a God who ignites a redeeming flame even in these places beyond the wilderness so that even these places beyond the wilderness might become holy ground for transformation and restoration and healing. I would encourage you as worship continues to unfold and certainly as you come to the communion table today, ponder at least for a moment where it is in your life that you might be experiencing what you would be inclined to describe as places beyond the wilderness. What does that look like for you these days? And ponder as well how it is that this God of ours, this God that we have come to church to honor and to know better, ponder how this God might be already at work to transform those places beyond the wilderness into holy ground. The conversation continues in Scripture. I have heard the cry of my people. God says to Moses, again speaking to him out of this mystical flame, I've heard the cry of my people, my people who are oppressed in Egypt, and I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them." Another portion of our God's character, I suppose, this stubborn refusal to remain at a safe observational distance and this relentless desire to come on down, to come on down to the valley, to come on down into our places of suffering for the purpose of drawing near to those who are languishing and for the purpose of delivering them in whatever way they are oppressed. This is a God who willingly comes on down into a burning bush for the sake of an oppressed people in Egypt. This is a God who comes on down into a Bethlehem manger on behalf of a world that groans for its redemption. This is a God who continues to come down into circumstances in which people and communities and individuals find themselves marginalized for the purpose of initiating a movement toward freedom, justice, boundary-breaking agapic love. This is not a God who is indifferent to human suffering, and I emphasize that point because have you discovered? I have. Have you discovered how tempting it is for human beings to slip into what might be described as a cold deism in their, conceptualis- their conceptualization, their theological understanding of God? This idea that God set the world in motion a long time ago and then stepped back from it just to see how things would go indifferent, insensitive, unfeeling, uncaring, uninvolved. That's not the God that we meet in this moment of Scripture sense that, know that. This is a God who hears the cries of God's people. This is a God who seemingly cares more about human suffering than we do. This is a God who willingly enters into the nooks and crannies of that suffering with a grace that is vulnerable and saving and delivering. I've heard the cries of my people and I have come down to deliver them. And then the final portion of the conversation. Look alive, Moses. God essentially says from that mystical flame, look alive because I am calling you to be my messenger to Pharaoh in the deliverance of my people. A calling to which Moses immediately responds, well, uh, excuse me, uh, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I'm pretty certain on this one, you have me confused with someone else because that kind of public service is not really my jam. Not really. And I suppose that's the riskiness, isn't it, of standing upon God's holy ground. It's not that we'll get burned by the flame. But the riskiness is that we might find ourselves radically inconvenienced, comprehensively unsettled by God's call to do something sacrificial for the sake of God's purposes. Look alive, Moses. Look alive, church. I'm calling you to be my messenger in the salvation of my people. It is a conviction of mine that Scripture at its best always provides imagery that helps us to picture what faith looks like and narrative that helps us to relocate ourselves into the story of God. And if that is true, then I'm compelled to ask these questions. Is there still some ordinary shrubbery in this world? (laughs) that is burning brightly with the flame of God's revelation? Is there still some common, ordinary ground in this world that is becoming holy because of the reconfiguring reality of God's transforming presence? Here's what I mean by that. Not so very long ago, I stood in Elmina Castle on the coastline of Ghana, West Africa, with a group of church people from the United States. Constructed by the Portuguese in the 1400s, seized by the Dutch in the 1600s, Elmina Castle figured prominently in the transatlantic slave trade for over 300 years. And that day we toured the dungeon and the holding cells where African slaves were imprisoned and tortured and strategically nourished. And I say strategically nourished because history tells us that they were given enough food to be kept alive but not enough food to generate energy enough for rebellion. And then we gathered at what is called the export gate at the castle that day, huddled together in this dark chamber, looking through this small door, glimpsing the very same sunlight that hundreds of thousands of slaves would have glimpsed over the centuries as they made their way through that door and onto ships that would transport them into a future that they could not have envisioned. I got lightheaded that day. Um, I had to steady myself against the wall, in fact, and I don't think it was the heat. I think it was a sense of the weight of that portion of human history accompanied by an awareness of my connection to it. You've had experiences like that. We went straight from the castle to the airport for the flight home, and we weren't assembled as a group again until we were sitting around tables at the McDonald's in the Amsterdam airport during a long layover before our connecting flight. And it was in that unlikely setting. It was in that unlikely setting around those tables in that McDonald's in the Amsterdam airport that we began to talk with one another about our experience at Almina Castle. I wish you all could have been there just to hear some of the things that were said. People vulnerably shared their stories, their hearts. Some people shed tears, and I really emphasize this. I didn't get the sense that they were superficial tears. They weren't tears generated by a a shallow, white guilt. They were authentic tears inspired by the recognition, and don't we have this experience sometimes in our collective repentance, this fresh recognition of the fact that we're all a part of a humanity that at one point saw fit to enslave, mistreat, trade other souls. One of the participants in the conversation was a woman in her 60s. And that day she said that her visit to the castle was something like a a burning bush experience. That was her exact imagery. It was something like a burning bush. And when asked to talk a little bit more about that, this was all that she offered. Look, she said, all I can tell you is that at one point today, I felt like Moses, standing on the holy ground of thousands of journeys, hundreds of thousands of journeys in which human beings bore the weight of all of humanity through the chains of slavery. I felt like I was standing on the holy ground of that. And I'll tell you what else she quickly added. When I was standing on that holy ground today, it felt like God was calling me in a way that I have never been called before. Calling you to do what, Bethany? Bethany? Calling you to do what? Well, she said, if I have to attach words to it, I guess I would say this. I felt like God was calling me today in that castle, on that holy ground, to fight against any force or any Pharaoh, she said, that would diminish life instead of nurturing it. And here's what's interesting. That same woman later that year would start an anti-racism ministry in her local congregation and in her district and that anti-racism ministry in her local church was what inspired her congregation to become a leading agent in providing resources and care for the burgeoning immigrant population in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And whenever she tells the story of that ministry, she is quick to say that her initial inspiration was a metaphorical burning bush. On the unexpected sacred ground of an old castle with an agonizing history on the coast of Ghana, West Africa. Which brings me back to the question, is there still ordinary shrubbery in this world that is burning brightly with the flame of God's revelation? Is there still ground in this world, ordinary ground, that is becoming holy because of the reality, the reconfiguring reality of God's transforming presence? As followers of Jesus in 2023, I'm inviting you to join me in offering a resonant yes to both of those questions. Yes, this God of ours is still making ordinary ground holy. And if that is true, then as followers of Jesus, I encourage you to live attentively. Don't meander through the pilgrimage. Live attentively. Because it may be that there is territory in your life right now, relationships, conversations, circumstances that God is already making into holy ground. And when those unexpected experiences of holy ground come about, don't be too quick to turn away from them. Take off your sandals, linger for a while. God might be saying something important to you on that holy ground. In fact, God might even have a couple of metaphorical pharaohs to whom God is expecting you to introduce to the countercultural priorities of Jesus, in whose name we gather around the table, and in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.